walking down an alleyway and you come up to a, a big wall and you can't see what's on the other side. And sometimes in life, you gotta just take off your baseball cap and throw it over the wall, if for no other reason than to force you to climb over and see what's on the other side. Fundamentally, this problem that we're trying to solve, which is how do we understand people better while they're interacting with a brand in order to kind of communicate with them in a way that's more valuable to them. Okay. That's a fundamental human reality, and it's one that's not tied to any particular generation of technology, and it's also one that's not tied to a category of business, really. You know, Absolutely. and I think that that's been really important for our durability and our ability to kind of continue to innovate and adapt to a changing technology ecosystem, changing consumer preferences, because we're, you know, our foundation is in that human problem. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This is episode 118 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, the first of two episodes where I chat with Bill Magnuson, co-founder and CEO of Braze, a customer engagement platform. Braze says that context underpins every interaction and it helps brands foster human connection with consumers. It was founded in 2011 and has revenues well north of 100 million USD. It has 50% employee growth in the past 12 months with growth every month through the pandemic. The model and business appear to be on the right side of history with pandemic growth fit as not a single month has not featured employee numbers growth. It's in the leadership quadrant in mobile marketing on the G2 grid. Its Glassdoor performance is superb, and it's obviously a big promoter of employee success with 88% of employees past and present recommending working there to a friend. And Bill has an outstanding CEO approval of 90%. Bill Magnuson, co-founder and CEO of Braze, customer engagement platform here at the Web Summit in Lisbon. Great to have you on the show, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Brilliant. Um, okay, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, your formative years, all the way from childhood, let's say, to uh, graduating in uh, MIT. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Minnesota, which uh, if you're not familiar with the United States, most people know of that as the frozen north portion of the country. And I grew up in a relatively rural area. I was actually a first generation college student. Uh, and so I grew up uh, just about a mile away from where my ancestors, when they immigrated to the United States, originally homesteaded. And grew up, you know, canoeing and, hunt and hunting and camping in the summer and snowmobiling and skiing in the winter, uh, but also had a strong affinity for computers. And so I think, you know, something that was encouraged uh, by my teachers and by, you know, parents and such, which was me spending a lot of time on my computer, would probably nowadays be called a screen time addiction. Uh, but it was really formative for me in terms of getting very interested in technology, uh, especially in the early days of the internet and such. And, and so, after kind of leaving high school there, I ended up going to MIT in Boston. The first one to leave the nest and move away from the, uh, the original homestead area and uh, studied computer science there. So I did both my undergraduate and master's at MIT uh, and I graduated right around when Android was launching, which ended okay. up being pretty formative. Okay, I, I'm not surprised you're from that area, of course, uh, partly because I can hear Tiny twinge of Fargo in there, maybe. Twin Cities, not much though. Um, but also the name Magnuson, there's a, hu a huge amount of uh, Nordic uh, migration to that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. It? And actually the, the cafe in my hometown still serves Ludafisk even to this day. Actually, you, you moved to uh, New York. 
living and working in New York compared to rural part of Minnesota? Uh, do you ever wake up in the morning and go, this is different? It's unimaginably different. Uh, and actually, my parents come out to visit uh, every once in a while, and my mom really revels in the, the culture of the city, but my dad, I would say, tolerates it. You know, he, uh, he enjoys coming out and spending time with me and, and my wife and, and the kids and such, but I think he always can't wait to get back home to the woods and to his garage. Fantastic. Uh, many kids? Uh, I've got two kids. Wow, great. What age? There are 14 and 16. Wow. wow. Uh, you're, a young, you're a pretty young guy. You started young. You grew up very... Uh... Yeah, so I'm a, actually a stepdad. Uh, I've, the kids have lived with my wife and I full-time since they were 8 and 10, uh, but they were you know, her kids originally. So. Fantastic, fantastic. I have two kids myself. Nothing nice. better in life. Nothing better in life. You went from MIT. So tell me about MIT, actually. Uh, what drew you to MIT? And, and uh, I suppose the interest in computing and engineering, I guess. Yeah, you know, honestly, it was because I saw MIT in movies that I liked. Uh, like I said, I was a first-generation college student, so I didn't have much to go on in my family, and uh, not much from a high school guidance counselor type perspective. Uh, and I, what I would now refer to as foolishly, only it was the only school I applied to. And I, you know, I, I, it sounded like an awesome school. I had seen it in movies, and so I applied, and then. I got in and you know there had been an option to go to the University of Minnesota which was you know in the Minneapolis St. Paul area I grew up about 30 miles outside of there uh, and I had done some programs with them when I was in high school that just gave me kind of an automatic ability to go there and that had actually been the plan the whole time meanwhile I had applied to MIT you know without really thinking about it a lot um, but when I got in it really changed the thinking for my whole family. You know, it wasn't something that even seemed like something I was ever going to do. I was just going to default into that path, uh, going to the University of Minnesota. And uh, when that acceptance letter came, I actually had this feeling of, <laughs> of this like opportunity was kind of sitting there at my doorstep, and I was going to ignore it. And I almost got angry at myself, where I I was just like. I had kind of been on this path my whole life and then felt like it wasn't the right thing to do to just default into you know what the plan had been the whole time. Here was this opportunity that existed. And I remember I had this conversation with someone in, uh, in that kind of senior year of high school when I had to decide where I was going to go. And he told me this just kind of anecdotal story of you know, you're walking down an alleyway and you come up to a, a big wall. And you can't see what's on the other side. And sometimes in life, you got to just take off your baseball cap and throw it over the wall, if for no other reason than to force you to climb over and see what's on the other side. Wow. And that like story that. really stuck with me because you know they were. It was an unknown. It was a total unknown. You know, going to Boston, moving halfway across the country. Um, you know, going to this school that I had only seen in movies. Like a lot of unknowns, a lot of risks. But you know, there was nothing to do really other than go check it out. And so ultimately that was what I decided to do. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many founders I've interviewed that have gone to MIT and have met their co-founders uh, in MIT. It's so, so there's no doubt it's a, it's a remarkable place. Um, I've been in the museum there actually. It's a quite a remarkable museum as well. Um, so you, uh, after that, um, you got an internship with Google as a software engineer, and you had a similar role, slightly more senior, probably with uh, Bridgewater Associates for a short time. Um, were there any experiences during that time that uh, you know uh, influenced you in becoming an, uh, an entrepreneur quite early in life? Well, yeah, I actually I had wanted to become you know I'd wanted to really start something of my own right when I graduated. And the kind of the condensed version of the history was that I finished my undergrad, and then I was actually recruited by. Uh, one of the professors from MIT that I had worked with in, during my undergraduate was 
at Google as a visiting faculty. He was on sabbatical from MIT and was uh, had assembled a small team that were working on something uh, in Google research around Android. And so he actually invited me to come and join that team. And so I went there uh, after I finished my undergrad and it was a visual programming language for building Android applications that was being done with a team of kind of past students of his that he had brought together into this small team. And it was out in Mountain View in the Android building. <clears throat> and so when I, uh, I had originally been planning to kind of go and do something for the summer and then come back and join a research group uh, in the PDOS group at MIT, um, which is a distributed systems group, and then finish out a master's. Uh, and I ended up actually changing plans to go and work on this project with Google. And it was right at the dawn of Android. So to bring you back, it, the G1, which was the kind of slider phone with the horizontal QWERTY keyboard, if you remember that one, had just come out that fall. Okay. And I had been involved in kind of building early Android applications uh, in the first launch of the App Store before they had any documentation. It was definitely a frustrating experience, to say the least. Uh, and was able to go out to you know be in the Android building in Mountain View, still at the, you know this is obviously post Google acquiring Android, but it was right when it was starting to come to life commercially. Uh, the MyTouch 3G came out, the uh, Cupcake, which was Android 1.5, came out that summer. Uh, and it really started to kind of build momentum. And so I went there, and as you mentioned, it was about a nine-month stint that I worked on that project for. And then uh, my uh, the faculty, this guy named Hal Abelson, he actually returned back to MIT to continue teaching. And I managed to finish my master's at the same time, because I, I kind of just did this great situation where I was able to write my thesis on the work that I was doing at Google. Perfect. And so I had this decision-making point, and it was either stay at Google and go find another project to work on, or kind of go somewhere else. And Google had gone from 5,000 to 15,000 employees in the, the kind of short history right before that. Wow. And it was definitely you know, a place where the culture was changing quite a bit. And I wanted to just go see what a smaller company looked like. I had interned at Bridgewater Associates, which is the world's largest hedge fund, uh, the summer before that, which was 2008, yep. which was an auspicious time to be in finance. Um, <laughs> you know, definitely exciting to see uh, the kind of inner workings of such a large financial institution as the financial crisis started to um, kind of unfold and, and you know affect global markets Absolutely. and the global financial sector. And the team that I worked with there was a really inspiring and intelligent group of people. And so when I left Google, I decided to go back to Bridgewater. And I learned a lot there. And I actually, that was where I met uh, the person that would become my other technical co-founder, John Hyman. Uh, he was one of my colleagues at Bridgewater, uh, actually my manager when I first started. And after about you know, 15 months there, I had learned a lot, come up to speed on a lot of really important topics around building software. Bridgewater has a very open culture, uh, and so it gives you really good kind of purview into understanding the inner workings of the rest of the business as well. As long as your ears are open and you're paying attention, you know, you're able to actually kind of impart, even as a junior employee, a lot about how you know, a, a giant company is being run. Yeah. Um, and I found that to all be, you know, incredibly valuable in terms of the knowledge that I imparted and have now been able to apply to building my own company. But I couldn't shake the feeling that the entire world was changing on the back of mobile. And I was sitting in, you know, an industry decades old, you know, that was not moving very fast. And I had had this front row seat for kind of by and large, the birth of Android and the birth of mobile and the smart, the kind of modern smartphone revolution. So I had this strong conviction that it was going to fundamentally change the world and wanted to make sure that I was going to be there and be a part of it. You're at this point in, in life where you have that conviction. Um, 
what problem did you spot initially? What, what initially did you set Braze up to try and solve? This actually stemmed from the experience that I had had at Google as well, and that we had built this visual programming language for building applications, and kind of that had a really democratizing effect in terms of who could build things. But actually, building things that were useful uh, was, you know, obviously a big step up from merely being able to create things that were kind of toys and gimmicks. And in the early days of the App Store, when you looked at it. You probably remember back to like 99 cent flashlight apps that were making a meaningful amount of money, or like soundboards with Arnold Schwarzenegger quotes Features. and things like that, right? Like things that were were toys and gimmicks, but they were successful because there weren't that many apps in the app store. And I had this fundamental belief that real meaningful at scale businesses would be built in mobile, and that mobile itself would also disrupt already operating giant you know, generational enterprises in the world, but it wasn't being realized in the early days of the mobile ecosystem. And so what I wanted to do was build something that assumed that that future was coming. Huge businesses would be built in mobile. Mobile would disrupt existing enterprise. You know, what are those businesses going to need when they get there? And were you keeping your eye? I was working in a startup uh, focused on iMode in Japan around that time. Uh, were you focused in, in that domain? Because, of course, they were ahead at that point in, 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 in the game. So I think that one of the critical things about where we started was that, and, and really where we're going in the future, is that we weren't really tied to a specific generation of technology or specific platform. Um, you know, I think a really big and in, an important part of certainly resource allocation over time has been an ability to read the tea leaves and, and figure out you know, which one of all of these different shiny things is really going to hit scale and, and you know, get a lot of investment um, so that we can kind of stay ahead of that. Uh, but fundamentally, this problem that we're trying to solve, which is how do we understand people better while they're interacting with a brand, in order to kind of communicate with them in a way that's more valuable to them. Okay. That's a fundamental human reality, and it's one that's not tied to any particular generation of technology, and it's also one that's not tied to a category of business, really. You know, Absolutely. and I think that that's been really important for our durability and our ability to kind of continue to innovate and adapt to a changing technology ecosystem, changing consumer preferences, because we're, you know, our foundation is in that human problem, as well as expand across all these different categories. And so in the early days, what we really looked at was how is the world changing with respect to that core problem? Understanding people better and communicating with them. Okay. And if you think about mobile, the key thing about this is that we've got these devices in our pockets now that we've brought into our lives. We have this intimate connection with technology that we didn't have before, and it's not really specific to the form factor or any sort of operating system. The fact of the matter is that we've attached technology to our personal lives now. And what that means is that through that technology, we can understand people better, and we've also been given this opportunity to communicate with them through it. Yeah. And that obviously comes with it a high level of responsibility. We need to be able to, you know, if we're going to get that permission to talk to people, if we're going to get that permission to understand people better, we better do something valuable with it. <laughs> Otherwise, we're kind of violating that implicit contract that exists. And so we kind of saw that there was this opportunity to be much more personal, to be much more human, to interact with people in a lot more valuable way. On the flip side, though, there was also a higher expectation. And the only way to really solve the tension of that higher expectation from the customer, and indeed a much larger and more diverse customer base than probably a lot of companies were used to, because the App Store meant that you could sell to the whole world all at once, you know, the only way to really solve that tension of the opportunity and the challenge was to take a more sophisticated approach and really apply technology to the problem. And so that was where we wanted to land and where we started. 
In the next episode, 119 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, in the concluding part of this chat, Bill talks about why Lean's startup methodology was not a part of his startup in its early years and why it took a few years before scale really kicked in. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating.